This is Uncovering Inclusion, a podcast about disability in Minnesota. Welcome to episode three, part of a five-part series that takes us back to the 1960s and 70s, to the home of the Angels in Minnetonka Mills, Minnesota, for infants and young children with disabilities. We're learning about Home of the Angels from people who are there, from a mother of one of the children, Shirley, from historic archives and policy, And today, it's my absolute pleasure to share stories from three of the staff members, two of which were the people who wrote the letter from the last episode, alerting the state to the dangerous and inhumane condition of the lives of the children in the home the state and public recommended. Thanks so much to my beloved fiancé, Gigi, for reaching out and finding the folks in the whistleblower letter. If you've just discovered this podcast, hooray! Visit us at uncoveringinclusion.com to learn more about us. You can also see photos of John, one of the children who lived at Home of the Angels, and learn a little bit more about what Uncovering Inclusion is. Since this episode is part of a series, I would encourage you to go back and start at episode one. But in case you're like me and you never follow directions, here is a montage of what has happened up until this point. Lake Minnetonka is like nothing else if you've never seen the shorelines that dot my home state of Minnesota. It still takes my breath away sometimes. The area around Minnetonka is spiritual to the people of the Northern Plains. Even now, near the giant homes in this affluent area are ancient burial mounds and artifacts from the people who were here first. Now home to expansive mansions and the nation's largest privately held company set another beautiful home. It's here that our first episode will take place in a manicured and masterfully designed neighborhood that allowed its inhabitants winding drives and privacy to enjoy the life of well-to-do Minnesotans. Down one of these winding drives in a big marvelous home that backed up to Minnehaha Creek were children with disabilities who spent most of the day tied down in cribs that lined the walls. We took John there when he was a baby. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, you couldn't see, visit your child, you could only come on visiting day. And visiting day, they had them all fixed up and pretty dressed, little baby girls with dresses. And uh, visiting day was quite a thing. They'd have picnic and, but you couldn't go any other. And we always wondered why. What follows is a letter sent anonymously to the Minnesota Social Welfare Department in hopes of being able to save the children before it was too late. January 26, 1973. 
Dear Mr. Tepper, I understand that you have recently been interested in the angels. I feel that I ought to bring to your attention some of the policies and conditions at the angels that would not become apparent from the kind of tours that are given to visitors, parents, or inspectors. Unfortunately, because of my close connection to the angels, I have to remain anonymous. We wrote it together. Well, you yeah. both wrote it together. Yeah. I oh take responsibility gosh, for the so typos. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> as soon as I read it, oh yeah, now you guys remember. are so awesome to, to have done that. Those are the voices of the whistleblowers Dave and Gay speaking with Callie, my friend and the niece of John, one of the children who lived at Home of the Angels and was saved because of Dave and Gay's actions. I was able to facilitate a pandemic meeting of sorts after Gigi found some of the staff who were named in the letter in the DHS archives, thanks to modern day social networking. I hosted a conversation in my backyard on garbage day after Gay had carefully ensured we were properly socially distanced with our masks on correctly, following all CDC guidelines. Um, I could immediately tell that she's a retired teacher, so respect, Gay. <laughs> Thanks for keeping us safe. I just sort of scattered a couple mics in the middle of us, hoping it would be enough to pick up our conversation. At one point, my neighbor, Joe's son, he came outside and just like hit approximately 4,755,000 million tennis balls and one came close to hitting gay. So the whole thing was a bit chaotic and weird and poor Callie, she just had to like wave <laughs> and smile with her eyes as she looked at people who made sure her uncle got to live into adulthood from under a giant brim sun hat with a mask covering everything but the top third of her face, and that was just our normal. Um, and it's our normal right now during the COVID-19 pandemic. So after this interview, I doubled down on asking Gigi to buy me an old farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, but for now, please pardon the noises of living by a big city. The malnutrition was very severe. Dave, do you remember that the, those bags of the cereal said not for yes. human consumption? Right, yes. Right, yeah. It was, it was meant for cattle? Up, yeah. Tap water and then, right, it's for, for calves, you know, because they don't want the calves drinking the stuff we are supposed to get. <laughs> right. So there's this powdered milk for calves, and that's what they bought for the kids there. And uh, we mixed that together, and then this dry Gerber's, like, flakes of... A cereal. We called it Gerber's glue by the time we were done. It was sort of like the consistency of cold oatmeal. Um, and, you know, in a big bowl for like half the kids there, they put two drops of vitamins. It was merely symbolic. And then um, you use the same spoon, right? Yeah, oh yeah, That's it's different kids and all that stuff, yeah. It's a wonder there weren't more diseases spreading through there, actually, uh, when I think about it. But um, I, I remember one girl, or I think it was a girl who wouldn't swallow her food and we were told to plug her nose. I mean, she could have... Oh, you know, yes, right, right, like yes. Yeah, I right. remember that, yeah. yeah. And a lot of the kids were fed. Um, some of them would sit up or something like that, but a lot of them were 
were out stretched on their back on the ground with their arms out and we would sit right above their head yeah. and um, put our legs over their arms to hold their arms down so that they couldn't interfere with the feeding and we'd shovel the food in. That was that was the method for a large number of the kids, really. Yeah. So when you gave them medicine, so I read that it was in an unmarked or an unlocked box of just like oh, yeah. medicine, yeah. Mm -hmm. and that uh, you guys had written that they didn't. People sometimes shared syringes. Even was oh, yeah. that was mm -hmm. that true? Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. Because the dilantin was given with the syringe, you know. Just a, you know, just a plastic kind of thing, but, you know, to squirt into their mouth. Um, kids didn't, the Dilantin must have tasted okay, because the kids didn't seem to fight that at all, but uh, How did but you know what to give the, How did you know what drugs uh, to give We them? had a list of who got what and roughly how much and stuff. The shots were given by Paulette, um, and I don't Peter. know what those shots were, yes. Um, we were told that she was almost a nurse. Okay. <laughs> telling us here is that Mrs. Ethel Mann, which I previously was mispronouncing as Mahan, had an entire system set up in order to alert her staff to a surprise visitor. When Ethel would push a secret buzzer, staff would know to carry out various tasks like putting extra fake time cards by the time clock or changing the children into their nice clothes. This routine was to ensure that visitors never questioned the horrors that happened at the Angels. And so when you were both there and you were having like humanistic feelings towards the people that were in that house, what was it like for you to like stand up against that or I mean what was what was can you tell me a little bit about what that was like for you guys? Well, you know, sometimes it was simple things like there was a boy who had hydro cephalism, mm -hmm. you know, and he was in a reclined chair, and couldn't lift his head, but I was teaching him to feed himself, and he was getting it, and you mm -hmm. could see he was feeling pride. Nope, can't do that. Takes too much time. Someone um, 
had read some article about pattering, a, a PE type of stuff where, you know, there's two people and you move their arms and legs, you know, in opposite directions. I'm sure it would have been good for the kids because they were always in bed. That was shut down too. So whatever we tried, we couldn't do. And I remember one little boy in the red room, I think his name was Joey, Joey and the doctor actually liked him. Heaven knows why, because he was adorable. He had blonde hair. And he, it was the first time I felt unconditional love for an infant, which of course, when I had my own children, I said, ah, I, I felt this before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, yeah, it, it was tough because, I mean, we were in this place where it was supposedly such a great place. And I mean, while we were working there, the media came around and did a nice story on it and all that stuff. Yeah, I knew it was fake. We were supposed to do something with the kids, you know, to, to, to look good and stuff for this. And so whatever it is, they didn't have hardly anything to do. But I was helping this little girl clap along with the music. She was profoundly deaf. Mm -hmm. you know, it didn't matter. It was just for appearances mm -hmm. kind of thing. But, you know, it had this good reputation. The other people had been working there before. And, you know, there's a little bit of this... You know, am I nuts? What's going on here? Because you're you're bucking the whole idea of what it was. And we were very young at that time. Twenty two. And all in all the staff treated it was very well, oh, I thought. Very you know, I never saw abuse from the no, staff. Yeah, never. What, you know, whatever they could do, they did do. And mm -hmm. You know, so the staff was really, con you know, concerned for the kids, and we were just trying to do that. And we talked with some of the staff, including a couple of the older ones. Remember Ray? He yeah, what, would, what was he, 25? <laughs> yeah, maybe 25, <laughs> I mean, at most, yeah, oh, okay. at most, yes. But, um, yeah, I don't know how he wound up there, you know, and a couple others. Uh, Dawn was mm -hmm. one of the ones who you know, was not just, you know, off the turnip truck kind of thing. Um, started talking with some of them about how could we get some more time or just even the permission to to do some things for the kids and establish some programs and think about, you know, particular kids and what it is that they could do to, you know, develop more and stuff like that. We, we were thinking about that. We tried some of it, as you say. Yeah, yeah I was a, you know, I just got out of college. Elementary school education is different than special ed, but a lot of things can apply. So my mine was full of ideas. I right, and try. you tried to start a union, right? Yep. Well, the first thing we did is we um, had a petition. Oh, that's right, yeah. To, um, to be able to do, you know, more of these things with the kids. And um, I'm not sure. I mean, we had it written up and it was signed by the majority of the people working there, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure whether we actually presented it or she got a, a hold of it, I think, before we were going to present it, and fired three or four people right away, and uh, basically, oh, and then excoriated so the rest of us. I'll never forget that meeting where she called us horseshit people. people. Oh my God, are yeah. you serious? You are horseshit people. It was, oh my goodness, oh, she just ragged on the whole staff and everything to be thinking about this and how this wonderful institution and how, how much better this was in the state institutions and so on and so on. And she was holier than thou and we were just, I mean, for us to question her judgment 
was just beyond the pale. And so she fired several people right away. And that was the point where um, we figured, well, if we were going to be able to do anything for the kids, we had to have protection for ourselves first. This particular time in disability history is so fascinating to me for a myriad of reasons. It was a time of social and psychological experimentation in human services. There was rapid change with the clash of so much old and new, a power shift, David and Goliath. Some of you might wonder if it was so bad working there, why not just get another job and report the home? The act of reporting in the state of Minnesota was, and still is, so incredibly difficult. Uncovering Inclusion will devote entire episodes to reporting in the future. If you've ever been a direct care staff in Minnesota and kept doing it despite the long hours and low pay and the way you're kind of blamed for a lot of social barriers that have nothing to do with you until people at the legislature get in a fight and suddenly everyone is calling you a hero because if you don't do that job, they're going to have to do the job. You'll probably recognize yourself in pieces of Dave and Gay's testimony. One of the reasons staff stay, despite feeling like a lot of the procedures they have to follow are not the best for the people they care for, was also told to me by Lynn another staff who worked during part of the time that Dave and Gay were employed by the Angels, who spoke to me last summer at her home. She talked about how she loved so many of the children, how when other staff wouldn't show up at night, it was just her, that she never saw a single sock or blanket for the children, and she saw parents and people who were supposed to be in charge never ask a single question about the treatment of the kids at the home. Much like Dave, Lynn thought, am I crazy? If I don't stay and what, do what I can, the kids will be cared for by people who will treat them poorly. Lynn was a young woman, just like Dave and Gay, when she answered an ad in the paper that said she would be doing arts and crafts with kids. When Lynn started her first shift, the truth was so much different. She spent her entire shift changing the diapers of children that were tied down to the cribs in bags. She also spent time cleaning in the room the staff refer to throughout this episode as the big kids room. This is where Callie's uncle, John, who lived at Home of the Angels since he was a newborn, resided during this time. Dave actually hand drew a map of what Home of the Angels looked like that Gigi will upload to our website along with photos of John and Shirley and our normal references used for each episode for people who want to spend more time with this story. I mean, the night shift was just changing diapers, making the rounds, because we had like 50 kids. I don't think we went down to the big kids' room at night. You know, they took care of themselves. Though there was one kid in the room who attended to uh, throw his feces. 
I was told about a story. Did you know? So Linnan told me that she heard when Hum of the Angels shut down that the one who threw his poop didn't have disabilities. Um, She heard that he didn't have developmental disabilities, but like they just, he was misdiagnosed and so he was throwing his poop because he wasn't being like stimulated. I don't know if that's true or not, but she said she would go into the room sometimes at night and he would have like smeared poop like all over the ceiling and all over the walls. Yeah, so that's great for the other kids. Yeah, and there was one boy who was so thirsty, he would pee into his own mouth. Wow. Yeah. I had forgotten about the fact they didn't get water. That was yeah, one of the points that I had forgotten about. Yeah, terrible. So, which is, you can't go three days without water, right? Uh, well, there was time. some in their gruel. Right. So yeah. that's why they right. yeah. didn't die. I think we might have been the ones who contacted yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, local 113 SEIU, they're still around. They're yeah. Hospital and nursing home workers. Yep. And um, they had two organizers work with us. Very young and very good. Um, really like them. They, they really had the spirit of it and all that stuff. And we organized. We had, you know, I think we had the majority of the cards signed, the whole thing. Of course, we were keeping it as secret as we possibly could. And somebody snitched. And that's when um, a couple more people got fired, including Gay, um, which was... And you yeah, couldn't really go to HR for retaliation, right? You couldn't be no, like, but then hey. there's NLRB. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah. Should we take it up with the NLRB? You did? Yeah, I, You're I, so I, badass. I that detail that you were being fired while I was playing the guitar. Yeah, it was the Sunday, so you were playing the guitar right. upstairs and uh, right. I was being fired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, they got fired there, it must have been just before Christmas, mm-hmm. because they, you know, they were there and they were doing Christmas songs and stuff like that. And then, uh, immediately, I was told that I needed to be retrained. Um, Never was trained in the first place. No, there was no training there at all. Not right, whatsoever. Right. But I was given impossible tasks, you know, to do one of the rooms entirely by myself. You know, 15 kids. Um, and, um... I was shunned. Um, no other employee was allowed to acknowledge my existence. So if we passed in the hallway, they couldn't even look at me, let alone say hi. That is so uh, terrible. It is, it is, that is a Sorry, very severe thing. That is um, And I was berated for everything I did. Um, everything was wrong. Um, just, just awful. Paulette Peaver was the supervisor who did that, basically. And it was... It may have been the worst month in my life. I mean, it was just awful. Uh, you, you know you're right, you know that, but still, it's just to be treated like that and to be shunned by everybody else and all that. I mean, I just felt sick every morning. Literally, you couldn't yeah. eat? Oh, yeah, I couldn't eat. I was I was an awful person. Well, and you were a conscientious objector, right? Yes, so that's right. like made it, did it not make it harder for you to want to quit or? Uh, no, it made it, it, it was illegal for me to quit. Yeah, will you explain that? Yeah. Don't ever take a job that it's illegal to quit. Right. That's your boss knows that. Mm -hmm. And it makes a difference. It sure does. So uh, but an NPC, yeah, so it's illegal to quit. 
As a conscientious objector, you get the job you do, do for two years. You have to stay there, otherwise it's kind of like going AWOL. It's five years and or $10,000, and people were prosecuted for that. Particularly at this time, um, there was more attention from the draft board. Because remember I said they stopped calling up people in August of 72? Um, when you do your alternate service, you're assigned to the state draft board in the state where you're working, as opposed to your local hometown draft board where you grew up. So um, I was assigned to the state draft board in Minnesota, and now that we weren't calling up anybody, and nobody was, you know, trying to get out of the draft and do all kinds of creative things and all this stuff, I mean, they were so backed up, they couldn't, you know, half the time people could slip through the tracks or something couldn't keep up with all the damn draft options. Mm -hmm. And of course, these are like three retired army colonels, right-wing military folks. And, you know, so they didn't like functions to mm -hmm. begin with, and we were just a bunch of hippies, and I did look like a hippie. And uh, you'd never imagine that. Now I know, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> one time. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, they have a thing against you. But you can leave a job if for some reason it's not working out, maybe they don't need you anymore. Or maybe there's just personal conflicts that aren't working. Or it turns out the job, you're not suited for the job, or something like that. But in all cases, the employer has to write to the draft board to explain why, you know, this isn't working out and this person can find something else. So anyway, this goes on for a month and I no, I thought she just, you know, hated me and, and didn't want to fire me because, yeah, it was more fun than firing somebody. Um, and I finally called her up at her home one night and said, what's going on here? Um, I can't take it. Um, and she said, well, all you got to do is get paid to drop her uh, a seat with the National Labor Relations Board. Oh, my you know. gosh. And so and I said, first of all, I wouldn't tell her to do that. And secondly, she, she wouldn't have done it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I did. So, the draft board thought that this was a wonderful place as I found it. She was working for it. had this great reputation in the community. She wrote all kinds of terrible things about me. I had a lot of sympathy for the families. Even afterwards, when all this stuff came out, a lot of them continued to become this man. But nevertheless, they were doing what they thought, in some cases, some, some just wanted to avoid it and hide it and all that. But in many cases, they thought they were doing what was, what was the best, even if it might be painful to, to do that. And so, um, yeah, so, You're welcome. and then to try to think that, oh my goodness, I, I thought I was putting my kid in the best place, and it turned out it was the worst. Mm -hmm. To end our time together, I want to leave you with words written in the newspapers about Home of the Angels back when all of this was happening. Research was done by Malena Tosin and it's read by Latya Halam.
Angels Home to Request State Advice by Joe Blade, Minneapolis Star Staff Writer. Detailed advice on how to solve alleged problems discovered at the House of Angels, a Minnetonka home for retarded children, will be asked of the State Welfare Department. The department has the responsibility under the law to provide such advice, despite the fact it is seeking to revoke the home's license, the home's attorney, Stephen Lang, said yesterday. Reporters barred from the home when the officials returned Thursday with doctors to inspect the children were invited yesterday for a tour of the facility at 13403 West McGinty Road They found three bright, cheerful rooms for the 50 children on a level below the Mayhem's home. Employees, almost all appearing to be teenage girls, sat on the floor and played with the children. Mrs. Mayhem spoke to the reporters later and said that she already had made some changes to meet criticism of the home. In-service training is done as needs and opportunities dictate, she said. Dental care for the children is the responsibility of the parents. It is important to comprehend that this is a home for severely retarded children, said Mrs. Mahan in a statement. This is not a home. Mm -hmm. This is not a home for borderline children with limited medical problems. 